If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We continue this marvelous study in 1 Peter, where Peter has written to those who are exiles, they're foreigners, uh, they're sojourners in a, a strange land. Ultimately, they're citizens of heaven, just like you and I. If you're in Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. You're not a citizen of this world. You're really an alien here, and so there's a sense in which you don't fit in. If you fit in in the world, the, the Bible makes it clear that you're not of Christ, you're of the world. The world hates Christ, the world hates believers, and so the, those who fit in with the world, the scripture declares, need redemption. They need to understand what it is to be in the world, but not of the world, to be a citizen of heaven, and really to be adopted unto the family of God, and to experience the joy that it is to be a sojourner in a foreign land with a message that the locals need to hear. And that's our great joy, to take that message to those who will listen and who will ask and who will uh, receive the Word of God and receive it for what it is, the Word of God and not the Word of men. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. We live in an era, we live in a culture where all efforts are made to avoid difficulty at all costs. Pain is absolutely taboo. Don't get between me and my paxel. You know, don't try to stand in the way of my comfort. We are a country devoted to personal comfort. Whatever it takes to avoid difficulty, to avoid pain, to avoid trials, to avoid tribulations. And the health-wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, feeds that. And so it's not only a problem with the world, it's really a problem with the pseudo-church. Really, the charismatic movement has done infinite damage to the church of Jesus Christ with this idea that all pain must be judgment from God. You'll see quite the opposite this morning as we look at the Scripture together. Pain is not only something that you're going to have to deal with just because you're getting older and you know, maybe you've had a few injuries throughout your life, but it is part of God's plan the reality is that that is part of his design for your conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. But each of you, myself included, could think back at some point in our lives, maybe even recently, maybe in the last month or the last week or even the last day, where some substantial difficulty has arrived and it is of such substance, the immediate question is, how can I avoid this? What can I do to change the circumstances to make my life more happy? How can I just feel better? The self-esteem movement started in the world, and now the world has recognized the reality that it's done infinite damage to children who are now adults who think that they own everything. I don't have to work for anything, just give me what I want. I've been told all my life I should feel better about me. I'm number one. I just need to think more highly of myself. 
sadly, this has permeated the church. So it's easy for us to fault the world, but what we need to do is consider where the church has been guilty to embrace worldly thinking. The idea that you should think more highly of yourself is completely foreign to the Bible. We are told to esteem others as more important than self. We're told to deny self, Luke 9.23. God has called us to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second greatest commandment, as you know, next to that, is to love your neighbor as yourself. But there is never a command to love self, and yet the church wants you to believe that. It's not true. We're called to trust the Lord, to love the Lord, to exalt the Lord, to serve people, to put others first. But as you know, when we're born, when you were born, when I was born, we're born into total depravity. There's nothing good in us. Uh, Romans 3 tells us that there is no one who is righteous, no, not one. Genesis 6, 5 says that every thought and intent of man's heart is only evil continually. David says in Psalm 51 that he was conceived in sin. Man has a problem. And it's not just eternal torment. It's not just that he deserves eternal wrath. It is the condition that necessitates that. The condition into which he is born is one of total inability. He can't choose Christ. And yet so many, many churches today are telling people, just choose Christ. Just add him to your life. Just ask Jesus into your heart. But the Bible says man is dead. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He's got no ability to choose Christ. What he must do is repent of his sins and believe in the gospel. And he must hear the word of God for that to happen. But all too often in those contexts where people are being told, you just need to add Jesus to your life, just ask him into your heart. They're not explaining what the gospel is. They're not explaining what repentance is. And so many, many times that will grow into a large number of people, most of whom have no idea what it means to be a Christian, and yet they all think they're Christians because they own Bibles and they're relatively nice to each other. The passage we're going to look at this morning completely undoes that whole idea. In Acts 14, verse 22, we are told, Through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So for a person to enter the kingdom of God, he must go through many tribulations. Now, run your most recent difficulty through that grid and ask the question, did I see it that way? Or did I see it as something that I just need to do whatever I can to change? 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, persecution's not fair. You have no business treating me that way. I, I don't deserve that. I deserve better. Well, again, Paul says to Timothy, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. James 1, verses 2 to 4, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Consider it what? Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. Now, just so you know, James is not telling you or me or anyone to pretend that life is wonderful when it's not. He's simply saying when things are difficult, embrace the joy that is given to those who know the Lord. The trial is still a trial. It's still very real. What we're not talking about is the idea of pretending that a difficult life is an easy life. 
But James goes on to say, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The concept is spiritual maturity. The person who avoids difficulty at all costs, refuses to be confronted for his sin, doesn't want to be instructed, doesn't want to be told what to do. You know, he might even say, I don't like to be told what to do. He'll never be mature in Christ. Because maturity in Christ necessitates a willingness to embrace various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith is what produces that endurance. In Matthew 5, verse 10, our Savior says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see the relationship? You see the pattern here? Those who go to heaven are those who are persecuted. They don't go to heaven simply because they've been persecuted. The reality is that those who are in Christ will be persecuted. But so much of the emergent church movement, which is really uh, the wave that just kind of followed the seeker-friendly movement, so much of uh, postmodernism as it has affected the church is telling people to fit in with the world. There's a well-known church movement in Seattle that's all about skinny jeans and tight shirts and rough speech, you know, grunge atmosphere. And the whole idea is do everything you possibly can to look exactly like the world. Don't be different from the world. Don't be set apart. Don't be sanctified. Fit in. Look just like everyone else who is without Christ, except have Christ. Uh, but then by fitting in with the world, you'll have an opportunity to share Christ with them. It doesn't make any sense uh, at all. When they see that you're just like them, they'll say, oh, you're just like me. You don't have anything to offer, do you? Jesus goes on here in Matthew 5, verse 11, to say, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You might say, I don't see suffering coming. I don't see persecution coming. And so when it arrives, I'm not ready for it. It takes me off guard. I'm not expecting it. I, I don't like that. I don't like to be surprised. Peter in chapter 4, verse Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. Trials for Christians are the norm. It shouldn't be unusual. And yes, if you've heard before that if you hadn't had a trial in a long time, you should be concerned. It's true. It's not to say that your life needs to always be upside down. But if you're not experiencing any kind of difficulty, take yourself to the book of Hebrews and remind yourself that God disciplines those he loves. Right? He disciplines those he loves, just like parents who actually love their children discipline them. Why? Because they want them to have a good life. They don't want them to grow up thinking that they own everything. They don't want them to have an entitlement mindset. They want them to understand that there are consequences for sin. There are consequences for selfishness. So again, Peter has said here, don't be surprised as though some strange thing were happening to you when tribulation arrives. You're a persecution magnet the moment you come to know Christ. Peter goes on and says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. 
See, that's very foreign to modern Western Christianity. Do everything you possibly can to avoid any kind of difficulty. My kid flips out, let him flip out. Don't discipline him, he's got a a disorder. It's not sin in the vanishing conscience, but John MacArthur has said it's a whole lot easier to say I'm sick than to say I've got sin. And that's what's happening in our culture. It's happening in the church. Parents are unwilling to address their kids' issues as sin. Employers are unwilling to address their employees as being insubordinate. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 4, verse 14, to say, If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and God rests on you. Now, Peter's not saying, he's not saying every time you're reviled, you're blessed. He's saying when you're reviled for the name of Christ, when people are genuinely angry with you because you have accurately represented Christ, folks, that could be your kids. It could be a coworker, it could be a neighbor. You're so that statement there. In the steps of Christ, we're called to suffer patiently so that we too will entrust ourselves to the one who judges righteously. That's really what we're looking at this morning. That's my effort to boil the passage down to the tenets that I would hope you would take with you and I would take with myself, that we would adhere to what Peter is calling us to in these verses. Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose. You've been called. Let's talk about what it means to be called. This is a look back unto salvation. In 1 Peter 1, verse 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. The person who is called, the person who is called to Christ has a hunger for holiness. He doesn't just look at the command that says, be holy as I am holy, and say, oh, gee, I guess i got to be holy. He wants to be holy. He loves righteousness. Romans 6 says he's a slave to righteousness, no longer a slave to sin. In 1 Peter 2, verse 9, Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So here where Peter talks about those who are called, he's talking about those who are called from darkness unto light. And you know from 1 John that the person who walks in darkness is not what? He's not born of God. The person who says, I'm a Christian, but he walks in darkness. He's not a Christian. And the most unloving thing you or I could do is to continue to put a stamp of approval on that person and say, no, I was there when you made a decision for Jesus and you were sincere, so I'm going to go with that. The Bible says we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Those who are called love holiness. They're committed to holiness. 1 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter speaks of not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So the person who is called unto Christ, he's called to inherit A blessing is a person who's not inclined to return evil for evil. He's not inclined to return insult for insult. That's not to say there aren't going to be failures in regard to that. 
but in the depths of his heart, he wants to be the person who gives a blessing to the person who insults him. That's the desire of his life. Why? Because he's called to receive a blessing for doing that. In 2 Peter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So those who are called by God's glory and his excellence have everything pertaining to life and godliness in the true knowledge of Christ. And yet, sadly, the Western church today has embraced all kinds of worldly thinking and worldly philosophies. 2 Peter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. So Peter here is talking about service to the body, loving the body, being faithful to the body, having a brotherly love for the body in an effort to be certain of your calling and your election. In Acts 2, verse 39, For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call to himself. The promise of salvation is for all those that God calls unto himself. Paul in Romans 1, verses 6 and 7 says, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I could go on and on and on. I'll read one more passage. In Ephesians 4, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So not only is there a certainty that those who are called will appear to be called, they will prove to be called by their conduct, their love for holiness, their love for God, their love for people, but there is a command for that to be stirred up. There's a command for that to be cultivated Well, Peter goes on in our passage this morning in verse 21 to say, For you have been called for this purpose. Called for what purpose? Suffering. Point number one this morning. Point number one. Expect to suffer. You say, that is not my brand of Christianity. That's what you're called to. Back in verses 19 and 20, this chapter... Peter says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Finds favor with God. It brings grace from God. When a believer receives suffering, when he experiences suffering, and he does so with patience, he endures it with patience. On the other hand, if he sins and brings about harsh treatment upon himself and endures that with patience, the question is, what credit is there in that? The point is, there's no credit in that. It's no big deal. If you're patient when you're being harshly treated for your sin, Peter says there's no credit in that. There's credit. There's not only credit, there's God's favor in enduring with patience harsh treatment that you don't deserve. 
Peter continues here in verse 21 with these words, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Paul in Philippians 1 verse 29 really kind of lays it down. He says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's the call of Christianity. You've been granted belief, and you've been granted to suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 5, verse 10, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. You see why we would say the person who rejects all suffering, he rejects all trials, he rejects all tribulations, can't be mature. This is tantamount to what James was saying earlier, that perfection or spiritual completion, spiritual maturity comes through endurance in trials. Trials play a substantial role in your life in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 2, Paul says, And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. So this isn't a hard-hearted message from the Bible saying, Life is hard, sorry. Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that we sent Timothy, our brother, God's fellow worker in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to encourage you because of the trials you were going through. And you know that the Thessalonians were faithful. Paul said to them, among many things, excel still more. The word was that the Thessalonians were faithful, and Paul had heard that, and they were faithful amidst afflictions. Having treated Joseph harshly, leaving him in a well to die and then selling him to strangers, his brothers feared his retaliation when they discovered that he was in command in Egypt and could easily have them executed. They assumed that it was their father who kept them protected from Joseph. And so in Genesis 50, verse 15, we read this record. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph shouldn't have had to tell them that because Joseph had already proven his goodwill toward them by taking care of them and taking care of their father and taking care of his own younger brother. But because of a guilty conscience, when their father died, they thought it best to send a letter and to plead with him to extend mercy to them, which he had already proven that he would do. Why? 
Why? Because he rested in God's sovereignty. His words were, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Now throw that into your theological pot and stir it around. You need to think about that. We live in an era where we are told that God has nothing to do with difficulty. He plays no role in any of that. He's just not involved. Yet Joseph said clearly, and this is what gave Joseph the ability to extend grace, God is sovereign. What you intended for evil, he wasn't whitewashing their conduct. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God's sovereignty permeates the scripture. Here are a few passages I've just read you. I'll read you a few more. In Isaiah 45, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah says, That men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me, quoting the Lord. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. So plenty of people would want to say, well, there are other gods, there are smaller gods who create calamity. And that's, that's not difficult to deal with. Of course, there's only one God. But the greater problem is in the church venue. The greater problem is in Christendom when people will say, God doesn't create calamity. God is not sovereign over evil. God is not sovereign over sin. He's not in control of those things. They might not say it exactly that way, but if you if you gently push someone into a theological corner, eventually that's what they're going to say. 1 Peter 3, 17 says, For it is better, it is better, if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. You read it again. For it is better if God should will it so. It's a reference to God's sovereignty that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. It doesn't make any sense in our culture. Suffer for doing what is right? No, no, it's better to suffer for doing what is wrong, not to suffer for doing what is right. You're a little confused, aren't you, God? But this is the God of the Bible. And this theology of God's sovereignty has been turned on its ear in a Western church that wants nothing to do with a God who's actually sovereign over all things. They want a God. You and I have wanted a God. We've all been guilty who we control. We dictate his theology. We say what we believe about who he should be. We want him to receive our stamp of approval and we can make that happen because we decide what's really true about him and what's not. He needs to fit our theological grid. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. You're going to suffer. Count on it. Be certain that it's going to happen. Expect to suffer because God has willed it so. God has ordained that you would suffer. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is not a religion of comfort, at least not at first. R.C. Sproul said, As soon as a baby enters the world, the baby is immediately introduced to pain. 
It is somewhat symbolic that life begins with a cry. Called for what purpose? Suffering. Expect to suffer. That's what you're called to. Point number two. Point number two. Know that Christ suffered for you. Well, see, that ought to be convicting. When you're thinking, I don't think I believe that God has willed that I suffer. I don't think that God has ordained that I suffer. But you've got no problem with the idea that he's willed that Christ suffer. Now we're getting personal. Peter says, since Christ also suffered for you on your behalf. From Acts chapter 2, very, very substantial passages regarding Christ's suffering. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You clearly see God's sovereignty in Christ's death, predetermined, but you also see man's responsibility. You see both. And then Acts 4, 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. So God predestined to occur all that these evil men did to Christ. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't God's response. It was predetermined in eternity past. And it was on your behalf. It was for you. If you are in Christ, if you love Christ, if you love God, if you love the church, you love His Word, you love evangelism, you love the things of the Lord, then you can be certain that His death was for you. His suffering was for you. He came because of His love for those whom He would serve. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus says, For the Son of Man came not to be served. But he came to serve. He came to be a servant. He came to be a suffering servant as foreseen in Isaiah chapter 53. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He became poor. The omnipotent one became an impoverished man. The sovereign of kings became a slave to mankind. The potentate became a pauper. The creator became a cupbearer. The king of heaven became kitchen help. Omnipotent God became a helpless baby who grew into frail manhood. But I thought he was the perfect man. I saw the movie. He was Superman. He was a frail man. He was weak in his humanity. And this idea that he was superhuman or he was the perfect human is actually idolatry. Several years ago, I was at the headquarters of the Mormon organization in Salt Lake City, and they take you on the tour down to a room that they call the meditation room. And I 
walked into that room, and immediately the first thing you see is the biggest thing that you will see in that room, and that is a 30-foot statue to the man-god, Jesus Christ. He's not a man-god. He is the God-man. And so uh, during the tour, um, I was mumbling a thing or two here and there, and the tour guide, very pleasant gal, said to me, at some point we'd like to have some interaction with some of you. In fact, sir, how about we start with you? The girl in our group sitting next to me said, oh, no. <laughs> and so I said, well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to point out that you've erected a, a statue to the man, Jesus Christ, in an effort to emphasize his humanity and to de-emphasize his true deity, indicating that he became deity by being such a good man. We believe that Jesus Christ, because the Bible teaches that he is God in eternity past and God in eternity future, always has been, always will be. He says himself in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. He is God. He has always been God. He was not begat and became a God. But here's the problem in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. So an unbeliever has no ability to comprehend the idea that God became a man. But they can comprehend the idea that a man could be good enough to make himself deity because they have a very, very low view of God. Well, as you can imagine, we didn't last long in that tour. Hebrews 5, verses 1 to 2 says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in this pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. He was a man, 100% man. Not part man, part God, not half God, half man. Not an admixture of deity and humanity, but 100% God and 100% man. And you say, that's impossible. And I say, you're right. It's a miracle that only God could accomplish, something you and I can't accomplish. We can't fully comprehend it. We know that it's true. This is what the Bible teaches. The Spirit of God attests in our hearts that it is true. It is miraculous. And God does the impossible. God, who is the creator of the universe, became weak. He became man. This is a direct statement here in 1 Peter to the household slaves to which he most recently referred, but it also applies to all Christians, all of whom are slaves to God. The idea that Christ suffered for you is true of every believer, every Christian. It's an expression of particular redemption this is not a universal atonement, but one that applies particularly to the recipients of the letter and all for whom Christ died. In Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge of the righteous one, my servant will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. And he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. If you can confidently say, I have a love for the holiness of God. I have a love for Jesus Christ. I am grateful for what he accomplished on the cross and in the resurrection. 
I long to honor him. I long to love the body of Christ. John, the apostle in 1 John says, it's obvious who are children of God and who are children of the devil. He says that children of God love the brethren and they love righteousness. So it is obvious. It doesn't mean that when you walk into a room full of people, you can go, oh, believer, believer, oh, not a believer, believer, I'm not sure, uh, yeah, not a believer. No, that's not the idea. It is through relationships. It's through discipleship. It's through interaction with people that in time we get to know each other well enough to say, hey, that guy loves the brethren. That guy loves righteousness. That guy repents for his sin. He loves to be confronted over his sin. He wants to be told how to honor Christ more effectively because he knows he has blind spots. He loves the brethren. He loves Christ. Hebrews 2, verse 10, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Christ suffered for you, and there was a work that was actually done in him through that suffering. You know, the scripture tells us that he grew in wisdom. Here, we are told that there was a perfecting work done in him that would result in the salvation of those for whom he died through his sufferings. One of the things that took place therein was that he became able to empathize with the ignorant. That's what the passage I just read to you said. He is not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He does sympathize with our weaknesses. He experienced thirst and hunger and fatigue and emotion and all the things that humans experience in full. He was not superhuman. He experienced the weakness and the difficulty and the fatigue that you and I experience. And through his sufferings, he supplied that which was necessary for salvation. In Hebrews 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Through his sufferings, he was made able to make propitiation. It means satisfaction. God, therefore, was satisfied with with Christ's death. Therefore, every person for whom Christ died, there is redemption. There is propitiation. Propitiation is a term of certainty. It's not a shotgun approach. Let's see who we hit. Let's see who picks it up and runs with it. Christ propitiated for the elect. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. If you're in Christ, you can say, this is speaking to me. According to the Scriptures, He died for me. Romans 5, verse 6, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You know this. Christ didn't come to save those who were well. He came to save the sick. He died for the unrighteous. Romans 8, 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? 
Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Romans 14, 9, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Ephesians 5, 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ suffered and died for you if you are of the church of Jesus Christ. Galatians 1, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age. It's a great joy to be able to confidently say, because of the love I have for Christ, I am certain that he died for me. The living proof for knowing that you have eternal life is perseverance. That's why we refer to it as perseverance of the saints. The issue is not eternal security. The issue is not once saved, always saved. That's not the issue. The issue is that those for whom Christ died will prove to be of the elect. They will, in fact, prove to love righteousness, and therefore they will prove in due time that God has destined them for an eternity of joy. It's a certain reality Acts 20, verse 28, for whom did Christ die? He died for the church. Acts 20, verse 28 says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Revelation 5, verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals and you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So in John three sixteen, where we read that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him should have eternal life and not perish The reality is that there will be some throughout the whole world from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation who will certainly be saved because they were certainly propitiated for on the cross. Their sins were covered on the cross. These are the people to whom Peter writes when he says, Christ also suffered for you. That suffering results in the certain redemption of those for whom he died And that ought not to create frustration. It ought to create joy. The person who wants to wrangle about those for whom Christ died, rather than saying, Lord, thank you, is spinning his wheels. Far better to say, Lord, thank you, that your blood was, in fact, propitiatory. It was satisfactory. It, in fact, satisfied your wrath. It didn't uncertainly, as I said earlier, in a universal kind of way, provide salvation or redemption for those who want redemption. It provided for certain for everyone for whom it was applied. Point number three. Point number three. Suffer as he suffered. Suffer as he suffered. Verse 21 goes on to say, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. He left you an example that you would follow in his steps. 
The Greek term here, hupagraman, literally means a writing under or a copy or writing underneath another sheet. It could mean, a, the, the term example is what I'm talking about here. It could mean a writing or a drawing placed underneath another sheet so that one could trace from the underwriting onto the blank sheet on top. So essentially what we're talking about is tracing on a blank sheet of paper what is underneath that blank sheet of paper. It's an exact standard. The effort is to stay exactly in the lines. It's a perfect standard. We are to follow this example. And what is the example? It is an example of suffering. As he suffered, you are to suffer. And look to him for how he suffered. He suffered with joy. He suffered with joy. You see, that message alone is completely foreign to the church today. He suffered with joy? I don't remember, I mean, suffering, I I don't like suffering. How can that be joyous? Because you're not finding your joy in your circumstances. You're certainly not finding your joy in the suffering itself. But you have joy, therefore suffering does not assail you. It does not prevent your joy. In Hebrews 12, verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. You see the idea there? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He suffered knowing that there was joy in store that was beyond comparison. goes on to say, despising the shame... He has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who, had, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Your ability to not lose heart hinges upon the degree to which you experience joy in your suffering as you look at Christ as your example. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That's our example. To the degree that we experience trials, that we experience persecution, we also are to consider it a blessing. Charles Spurgeon said, It's an unfortunate thing for the Christian to be melancholy. If there is any man in the world that has a right to have a bright clear face and a flashing eye it is the man whose sins are forgiven who is saved with God's salvation see folks that ought to be seriously convicting for you and for me if regardless of the trial we are seen to be sad we're seen to be overtaken with depression or discouragement I'm not saying that to be a Christian means that you are to be always happy and there is no difficulty There is a drastic difference between godly sorrow and depression that overtakes you. You have no reason to be depressed. You say, you don't know my life. I say, I don't think you're really looking that closely at the Scripture. There's a drastic difference between a self-focus that leads to consistent depression that avoids the reality of the fact that your sins are forgiven. How can a person not have joy if his sins are forgiven? Here's how. He thinks that whatever the circumstance is, is greater than forgiveness for sins. And he selfishly, rigidly sticks to that mindset. And he never will consider the possibility that to actually be forgiven for sins, to avoid eternal torment, and to be with God forever is better than having a better job. 
or a better spouse or a better car. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1 says, Be imitators of me, just as also I am of Christ. Are you, are you worthy of imitation? It's one thing to ask, do people know that you know Christ? It's another thing to ask, what about when trials arrive? What do you do? Do you see that as a great opportunity to trust the Lord and to be evangelistically effective around a lot of people who are waiting for you to throw in the towel? Because that's really what it is. But if you've bought the idea that all suffering is to be dismissed, erased, done away with, you're going to be completely ineffective in your evangelism, whether it's in the home or the neighborhood or the workplace or wherever. Who are you spending time with? Are you spending time with people? Are you surrounding yourself with people who are willing to embrace suffering? What, again, about you yourself? Are you an example for others around you? Do people look to you and say, there's a person that knows how to handle a trial? Or how about this? There's a person who is desirous of learning how to handle a trial so as to be effective in the church and in the world at winning people to Christ. But why suffer? Why would God sovereignly determine that we would suffer? Because suffering conforms you to the image of Christ, and that pleases the Father. If you've got a trouble-free life, you're never going to be any good for anybody. Suffering brings about conformity when we respond rightly to it. In 1 Peter 4, verse 1, Peter says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's not saying that the person has completely stopped all sin. The point is that he has ceased being an utterly, completely sinful person. Kind of like the Apostle John talks about sin. The person who continues in his sin, the person who practices sin, he's not a believer, John says. Peter's talking about the same kind of idea here. He has ceased from sin. Sin is no longer the hallmark of his life. He is able to gain victory over his sin. He is able and does master his sin. So, as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. Of God. Again, Peter says, arm yourselves with the same purpose. What purpose? The purpose of suffering. Now, you understand, neither Peter nor I are saying, go out and stand in front of a train. But the point is that when suffering arrives in your life, embrace it. Think of it as the tool or the vehicle by which God is going to produce His glory, the edification of the saints and the evangelism of the lost. Romans 8:29 says, "For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren." God determined in predestining some unto salvation that they would be conformed unto the image of his son, and that conformation takes place through suffering. If you avoid all suffering, you're not going to be conformed to the image of Christ. John 3, verse 30 says, He must increase, but I must decrease. How does that happen? 
How does that take place? It's the result of a willingness to embrace trials. That trials and tribulations would shave off the, the rough edges, the spiritual disease, the problems, the sinful tendencies. See, suffering forces you to either make much of yourself or realize the truth about yourself. That's why the proverb says over and over, the wise man receives instruction, but the fool rejects it. He doesn't want discipleship. He doesn't want teaching. He doesn't want interaction. He doesn't want confrontation. He doesn't want rebuke. Suffering will either lead you to pridefully demand service from others or to humbly offer it up. If suffering disables you, you'll either manipulate others into serving you out of guilt or gratefully receive their ministry to you. There are those who are not able to serve. They need others to serve. So how one handles that is a reflection of whether or not they're being conformed to the image of Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We are to suffer as he suffered. Not in the exact same details, but in the same mindset, the same pattern. A willingness to be persecuted for his sake. By suffering for you, he accomplished propitiation for your sins. By leaving you an example of suffering, he established your power over your sin. So Christ not only suffered for you, but he gave you an example of suffering. So point two and point three, although they might seem very much alike, are actually very different. Point two, know that Christ suffered for you. Point three, Suffer as he suffered. Follow his example. His death for you is a redemptive suffering. His death in his example is for your example. It's for your sanctification. That you know that he died. That you know why he died. That you know what his death accomplished leads certainly to your willingness to be conformed to his image to be sanctified, to be less like self, and to be more like Christ. Suffering for you resulted in your salvation. Leaving an example of suffering for you ensures your sanctification. The one who says, Lord, you know best. You know what I need. You know what tribulation I need to be scathed to be changed, to be less like self, to be more like Christ, that I would decrease, that he would increase, that I would be conformed to his image, that I would be perfected, matured, made complete. You know what I need, Lord. Charles Spurgeon said, those who dive in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. Peter uses this terminology then after having said that he is leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps so not just an example that's out there for you but that that example would be followed that there would be a willingness to walk in his steps christ's life established a footpath a line of direction a roadway to be followed i was never fond of the what would jesus do bracelet because there's so many circumstances wherein you wouldn't do and couldn't do what jesus could do or would do but there certainly are circumstances, many, where we ought to be thinking, 
What is the example that Christ established? And it's true across the board, the example of humility, that Christ himself emptied himself, that he became a bond servant, that he went to the cross as an innocent servant, as an innocent lamb, as a spotless lamb. You and I could die for self, but all that would do would result in an eternity of torment. You and I couldn't die for anyone else. He, though, being innocent, could die for the guilty, and therefore the just died for the unjust. That's the mindset you and I are to have. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. This is how Christians are known. Those who are in Christ are willing to die for the body of Christ. It's a very, very unpopular message. Again, I'm not talking about to the world. I'm talking about to the church. Not a lot of people want to hear Christianity is a call to death. It's a call to death to self. D. Edmund Hebert said, His footsteps lead into the valley of humiliation, even to its lowest and darkest depths. But they also surely and confidently lead through the valley ending at the throne in glory. You follow the footsteps of Jesus, you're going to experience pain. You're going to experience suffering. You're going to experience persecution. You're going to experience hatred. You're going to experience hatred from people who will surprise you. If you come to truly love Christ, and perhaps you have, one of the distinct realities of being in the Christian faith is that those in your family who do not know Christ will develop a disdain for you. The promise of the Scripture, it is a certain reality. And maybe what's most confusing about that is not those who would say, the whole Jesus thing, I'm not into that. The whole church thing, that's a waste of time. Giving money to the church, why would I do that? That's not so difficult to assess. But what becomes difficult is when there are family members who claim to know Christ and want nothing to do with the church. Friends, that is not a Christian. There's no category in the Bible for a believer who wants nothing to do with the body of Christ. Again, back to 1 John. Now you might think, you know, you've got an argument against me. Those are not my words. John makes it clear. He who does not love the brethren is not born of God. I would say it's important for you and for me to look for others on that path. It's important that you and I understand who is on that path, who is walking in his steps, and who's not. Why? Because we love both categories of people, that's why. Not because we're in a club and it's us for no more, shut the door. But because we love all people and we want all people to live in reality. And what's actually most loving is considered most unloving and that is when we address what it really means to be a believer the reality is the lord has called you and he has called me to suffer most of you know who johnny erickson tata is uh, the age of 17 18 had a diving accident became a quadriplegic and um, 
quickly began to experience great hatred for God and really all things. You know, really not even quite yet in the prime of life, but quickly headed there, very involved in sports and music and drama, very active, fun, uh, dear young lady. Someone gave her a copy of Lorraine Bettner's book on predestination. And that's the book that changed her life. Because it was in reading that book and seeing the sovereign hand of God that led her to recognize the reality that suffering was part of his design. I've heard her speak a number of times. And she's usually pretty quick to say, please don't let me leave you thinking that I enjoy being in a wheelchair. I'm not trying to tell you that I wouldn't enjoy being able to walk. But in my heart of hearts, I'm grateful for what the Lord has done in my life because he is sovereign and he knows best. She said this, Because of my sufferings, I will appreciate in heaven the scars of Christ and also the scars of other believers. In heaven, I will see men and women that in the world were cut in pieces, burnt in flames, tortured and persecuted, eaten by beasts, and drowned in the seas, all for the love they had for the Lord. What a privilege it will be to stand in their ranks. But what a shame it would be if, in conversing with them, we could only shrug our shoulders and prattle, Me? Suffer? Perhaps we would bite our complaining tongues more often if we stopped to picture this scene in heaven. The examples of other suffering saints are meant to inspire us upward on our heavenly journey home. Lord, we thank you for the clear doctrine of your word as we read it in your word. You have assured us that we've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example for us to follow in his steps. And so we think of the call that you have placed on us to live with purity, to love righteousness, to honor you, to honor Christ, to honor the body. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his suffering for us. We thank you that ultimately he died for you that your wrath would be satisfied, fully poured out completely on him, and that propitiation has certainly taken place. We rest in that. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to be loving and kind and gracious as we communicate that. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.